Tick, tick. Stuff 2020. Election. Podcast. So I feel I need to do a clarification slash apology. Shoot. Yeah. Uh, so you sometimes go to the same Les Mills Takapuna where someone with COVID popped in for a few classes last week, right? Yeah, but it's all good. I'm fine. I wasn't there. Checked on my COVID tracer and all. Yeah, but I remember last Wednesday evening, which is when the person with the COVID was there, I was encouraging you to go to that class because you'd missed your lunchtime session and you said... Nah, because you were feeling lazy and now it's getting late and you fancied a beer instead, but I was kind of putting pressure on you. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. So you were trying to put me in harm's way. Yeah, so that's the bit I want to clarify. I really had no forewarning about the danger that would have put you in. Okay. Clarification slash apology accepted. And see, that's why being lazy should be encouraged at all times. Hi, my. This is Tick Tick Stuff's 2020 election podcast for Wednesday, the 16th of September in Te Wiki o Te Reo Māori. Ko Adam Daring Tene. Ko Eugene Bingham Tene. Tena Koutou Katoa. We bring in the news and some of the more unusual things about this election, and then we slow things down to focus on one particular kōrero. There are 31 days until the election. So, here at Tick Tick, we're 18 episodes in, and we've had some feedback. Apparently, some people don't actually realise what's going on at the very top of the show. You know, the bit that goes... Tick, tick. Stuff 2020. Election. Podcast. Because you see, those aren't just any old people saying that stuff. Oh, wait. Did someone just think that we'd recorded Rando shouting the title of our podcast and slotted them into the theme tune or something? Yeah, precisely. So I thought we need to explain. Those are actually members of parliament because this is a political podcast, and those clips are taken from Parliament and have been lovingly stitched together on our computers. So, who have we got? The first tick, tick, is National's Erica Stanford, and the second one, tick, is Paula Bennett. The person saying stuffs, stuffs, is Finance Minister Grant Robertson. Side note, it was really quite tricky finding someone saying stuffs. The links we go to for our art, eh? Anyway, 2020, 2020, is the PM, Jacinda Ardern. Election, election, is former National Leader Simon Bridges. And finally, podcast, podcast, is departing Nat Maggie Barry. Which seems kind of fitting, seeing she used to be on the radio. Hmm. Anyway, so thanks, Erica, Paula Grant, Jacinda Simon, and Maggie. And it is kind of appropriate that we've highlighted that today because our feature interview is with Trevor Mallard, the Labour MP who is the current Speaker of the House of Representatives. He's the kind of referee of Parliament. Plus, he does a whole bunch of other stuff, which you'll find out about in our court at all. That's later in the show. But first, Eugene, what's been happening? On the big promises front, Labour says there will be more free school lunches. That program is to be extended, they say, but... The free, <laughs> I knew I was going to mess that up. The fees-free tertiary education scheme, which was originally to be extended out to cover three years, is frozen indefinitely at just a single year of fees-free per student. National, meanwhile, wants to improve dental care access for children with an extra $30 million in funding. This includes a free toothbrush and toothpaste each year for children. Is it like one really big tube of toothpaste that lasts you the whole year? I don't know. It's not clear. More than $255,000 in donations have been made to the controversial New Zealand Public Party, led by Billy Takahika. Former members and staffers have raised questions about the paperwork, but the Electoral Commission says, look, because NZPP was never actually registered as a party, there is no obligation to report donations. 
NZPP merged with Advance New Zealand, led by Jamie Lee Ross. Now remember, he's the former national MP. Ross was going to run for Advance NZ in the Botany electorate, but announced yesterday that he's only going to stand on the party's list. Debates continue about the All Blacks Wallabies rugby test matches. There have even been conversations between Jacinda Ardern and Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison about quarantine arrangements, all in an effort to make sure the Bledisloe Cup test matches go ahead. Ardern would not want to be known as a politician who dropped the ball on this one. And neither would the former Scots College flanker Dr Ashley Bloomfield, a.k.a. The Eliminator. Good point. You could say he would want to make sure this one was converted. Is that a rugby pun? So big moment in the campaign, the uh, political parties' TV commercials are here. Oh, There's this one featuring Labour leader Jacinda Ardern. Together, we went hard and early to fight COVID. Our plan now is... And the one from national leader Judith Collins. New Zealand, let me be straight with you. Communities, lively... They're only 30 seconds each, but no, you can pack a bit into 30 seconds. So I've watched them, so you don't have to. And I've analysed them. And I'm going to work out who did what best. So, perhaps most importantly, who managed to talk faster? Jacinda Ardern managed to get 68 words into her 30 seconds, where Judith Collins got 77. So that's a clear win for National. That's nine more words for National. Or maybe more is less. Less is more. If less is more, the whole thing turns on its head and mm. uh, Labour is a clear winner. But either mm. way... Uh, there's a differentiation. There's a clear difference between the parties. People say sometimes that New Zealand's a little bit centrist, there's nothing much to choose between the parties, but I can tell you that Judith Collins speaks roughly, you know, I'm not going to do the maths, but 8% or something like that faster. Stark. Anyway, on to the other important things. Camera work. There is a clear winner on this one. Okay, so what we've got with the Jacinda Ardern video is she's sitting at her desk and it's quite a wide shot. She's sitting in the middle and you can see her hands as she clasps and waves them and counts things with her fingers. And then very slowly, the camera zooms in. And I guess if we were doing film school, we'd say maybe there's aiming for some kind of intimacy as we get closer and closer to the person talking. Meanwhile, in the Judith Collins video, it starts with a similar kind of crop, very, very wide, but the background is sort of a blue vignette kind of thing. Lots of blue, lots of blue. Lots of blue. And there's so much blue. She's wearing a light blue jacket and there's a dark blue behind her. Anyway, really wide, lots and lots of blue, fairly small Judith Collins in the middle, and then she says a few words and then, boom, suddenly she's like right up in your face and they've zoomed in on her and she says a few more words. And then, I don't know, it's like the camera operator lost confidence in such a bold crop and and went all the way back again and it's suddenly right to the really wide shot the big cinematic wide shot and there's little Judith Collins talking away and then boom it zooms in again and then it zooms out anyway it's um it's a little bit disorienting so uh labor for much more delicate camera work uh what else um I suppose the third thing if you're if you're analyzing a movie is the mise-en-scene as they say, what you see. And as already mentioned, Judith Collins, um, mostly a whole pile of blue and her. And then in the very last shot, you've got the dozen or so gnats all lined up behind their leader, which is nice. Whereas the Labour to Sindra Dern video, it's far cosier. You've got the desk, which has got like a teacup and a saucer and a notepad. I guess the pen and paper, she's going to write some notes and do something in prime ministerial. There's a softening touch of a flower on the desk. In the background, there's some kind of ceramic hen, as far as I can tell, and a snow globe. 
It's a bit out of focus, can't tell you what scene the snow globe is of, but um, it might be something patriotic, it might be Wellington snow, I don't know. There's a whole pile of books, bookshelves, a few bits of art, and that's some more flowers in a, in a vase thing. Crucially, and this has become a signature theme for Jacinda Ardern in recent times, you've got Michael Joseph Savage, black and white, sitting there looking kind of Michael Joseph savage in a nice wooden frame. And that's always over to what is to her left. And I don't know if we can read any political significance into the fact that Michael Joseph Savage is to her left, but he is. And there's a New Zealand flag in there as well. I'm not going to assign points here, but if we were building sets from scratch for these two film shoots, you'd be spending more money on the set for the Jacinda Ardern video. I don't know. Does that make it a winner? Um, the other thing I noticed was uh, a bit of music. I definitely recognise the first few chords of Tiki Tane's Is Our Love Worth Fighting For in the Labour video. So, uh, And he previously, uh, one of his songs featured in the 2017 campaign ad as well. So, uh, Do you recognise the music for the national video? No, I didn't. And it, it wasn't Eminem-esque, I can certainly say that. Actually, there is quite, there's quite a difference in tone between the music, isn't there? Because that Tiki Tane piece is quite sort of sunny and mellow. And the National Party's music, particularly at the beginning, when Collins is saying communities, livelihoods, futures are at stake, there's a slightly more ominous tone to the music. But by the time you get to the end, it cheers up. And there they are, all ready to go. Oh, well, I look forward for your searing analysis of the other party political ads as they emerge during the campaign. All right. I think we should move on. Time for our occasional series. I did not know that. New Zealand political trivia. Oh, fun. What have you got? Well, I got to thinking about our upcoming referendums. Referenda. <laughs> Actually, just a quick diversion here, because our staff colleague Thomas Coglin pointed out recently that legislators are not exactly helpful on this one. The statute books are frankly a shambles. So in 1993, there was the Citizens Initiated Referenda Act. Mm-hmm, very good. In 2015, the New Zealand Flag Referendums not so good. Act. And 2019 has the Referendums Framework Yeah, I saw that tweet of Thomas's, and I noticed that someone who said they were a lead advisor on the flag referendums bill commented on the tweet and said that they treated this issue of referenda versus referendums very seriously. Well, well, well. So the two more recent statutes are referendums, and that lead advisor person said they'd study this very closely. I say concede, Dudding. Never. All right. Anyway, I was only thinking of the cannabis referendum singular, so we can park that debate to one side for now. But my thought really was about that other mind-altering drug, booze. And over the years, New Zealand has had various states of control over booze. Yeah, and you you live out west, right? And you can't even buy alcohol in the supermarkets. Mm, That's right. Yeah, correct. So we have a trust still in charge of alcohol sales, but you can still buy it. In parts of New Zealand, there has been prohibition from time to time. In 1893, for instance, Clutha voted to go dry. Prohibition, eh? No booze at all. Nope. And in 1919, the entire country came close to going dry. 13,896 people voted for prohibition that year, which was enough to win. But then what happened was votes came in from overseas, from all the military forces still serving after the end of the First World War, and it was enough to swing the balance back. So it ended up being 51% for continuing the sale of alcohol. A close-run thing. Mm. But what I was really thinking about, though, was how traditionally alcohol has been a big part of the parliamentary process, you know, almost lubricating the wheels of power. Yeah, and we talk about that with the Speaker, Trevor Mallard, in our upcoming chat with him, don't we? What's the name of that pub across the road from Parliament where they have the puppets of MPs hang from the walls and the the meals are all you know politically themed? Mm, backbenchers. That's it. Yeah. So what I'm about to say shouldn't really be a surprise. So 
The first meeting of members of parliament was in 1854 in Auckland. That's right, and we've talked about the move from parliament from Russell on the land called Okeato to Auckland and then to Wellington. Yeah, so what was the first bill that was passed by parliament in 1854? I feel like there should have been some sort of spoiler alert because I reckon it's going to be alcohol-related, isn't it? Yeah, maybe, because... It was a law known as the Bellamy's Bill, the Licensing Amendment Act, which allowed the sale of alcohol within Parliament. MPs even suspended standing orders to do it, and one legislative councillor, Frederick Whitaker, denounced it as, quote, setting up a grog shop for members. Well, I did not know that. There you go. By the way, why Bellamy's? Well, that's a hangover, excuse the pun, from Britain, where the Parliamentary Refreshment Room got its name from John Bellamy, who established a premises in the House of Commons in 1773. Well, I did not know that either. Two and one. Two for the price of one. Right, on with the show, or should I say... Order. That's right. Today, we're interviewing... Trevor Mallard. I'm Speaker of the New Zealand House of Representatives. You'll hear directly from Mr Speaker himself about what exactly his job entails, but... Basically, if you've ever watched coverage of Parliament since 2017, Trevor Mallard has been the person you'll most often see sitting in the big chair with a sheepskin, I think it's a sheepskin, at the front of the house, sometimes holding a baby, actually. Um, Mm. Front of the house, which is where the MPs gather to debate and pass laws, all that. Yeah. We say most often because there are deputies and assistant speakers, but yeah, he is the speaker, so that means he gets to do things like this. With all of that, uh, I declare the House adjourned which was just a couple of weeks ago when the parliamentary session finally ended. So there was a lot we wanted to ask Trevor Mallard about, from does parliament actually work, to is it as toxic as people have said it is? But we started off with a more personal question. Specifically, why would he want to be in charge of that place anyway? So you've really done it all in Parliament, backbetcher, opposition MP, cabinet member. Then in 2016, you decided that you wanted to be the speaker. Why that job? Well, I think it's fair to say that in 2016, I didn't have high expectations of Labour being in government. And even about 10 weeks out from the 2017 uh, election, I thought I was going to be uh, looking for a job later that year uh, without the benefit of a valedictorist. But you know, thing, things changed. I did some work um, between 2014 and 2017 as assistant speaker. I saw it as a way of making myself a bit less aggressive and political in the House. I'd, I'd had enough of being uh, what might be described as an attack dog. I'd always been interested in the way the House worked. I'd been a, been a whip in the past. Uh, and I thought I could make a contribution to helping to teach some of the newer MPs the rules and techniques and maybe make a contribution to improving the place, even as an assistant speaker. Well, I I quite liked the job. I didn't like the assistant speaker's job quite enough uh, to want to hang around from 2017 to 2020 in that job. So I I indicated to um, Andrew Little, who was the leader, that it would be my intention to uh, retire if the party was not in government. And so, you know, and, and I didn't have any high expectations uh, of that occurring. But as history tells us, we had a leadership change and uh, we had a slightly surprising decision from Winston Peters. And uh, one of the uh, flow-ons from that was that I became Speaker. There you go. So 
yeah, there's a lot to the role. But can you sort of summarise for us what the job of the speaker is? I think you can sort of break it into a couple of big parts. Uh, one has to do with the the house and, and related things. You know, you you clearly chair the house. Uh, when it's in session, shared with the deputy and, and, and the assistants. Related to that are things like the business committee and standing orders committee. Then there's a separate job, which I would describe as, as ministerial. We've got a big set of buildings. Uh, we've got about a thousand people who work between the uh, the office of the clerk and the and the parliamentary service, both in Wellington uh, and around the country. So I employ the employers the chief executive and the clerk, and I chair the Parliamentary Service Commission, which is sort of a system of testing with members as to the direction uh, that members of the parliament want to take with the uh, running of the facilities, the right. rules, the employment rules and things like that. In that in that job in Parliament, you sort of the the neutral ref, as it were. But you know, I've refed my kids at football, and I know it's really hard to not display a little bit of favouritism to your own kids, or or the opposite, actually be a bit too hard on them. How do, how does it really work? How do you do that? Well, I try and do the latter. I think the biggest problem is uh, with speakers, and I've seen lots of them over the years, is when you have people who are clearly biased towards their own silence. And I've, you know, I mean, I've left my own kids at sport, and I often use that as an analogy. And when you do that, um, you, you, you tend to give the marginal calls to the other team. Your kids don't like it. You know, the other parents often don't like it. And parallel here, your own team don't like it. I mean, I, when I make calls that the opposition don't like, there's obviously a, a, a big public discussion about it. People get all offended in the house and outside and there's a degree of referee abuse every now and again. Mm. But if it's against my own team, especially the Labour Party, then the discussions tend to be private and, and in my office. But frankly, they're more intense. Mm. Uh, they are sometimes my friends who I'm having arguments with. And, and the other point, the other obvious point is, like all referees, I make mistakes. And unlike the test match referees, I don't have the video ref that I can go to uh, and have a look and, and, and make my decision. I do go back and look at things where I've got questions about it. You know, did I handle that one uh, well or not? And certainly every time when someone gets tossed out, I look at that really carefully um, because there are ways that you can de-escalate things before they get to that serious point. And I do try and learn uh, how to de-escalate, to mediate, uh, but it doesn't always work, and you know, and I know uh, because I was one of well, them. I did not Order. make the comment. Well, the member will leave the chamber for the rest of the day for not making a comment. Order. Uh, there are some MPs who just don't care about being thrown out, and will you know challenge to the point where it's inevitable. election period, what do you do? Have you have you sort of got your Labour sweatshirt back on? Are you out on the hustings? Or how does no, it work? No, not at all. We, I think we've developed a tradition relatively quickly since MMP that is very much parallel to the UK parliamentary tradition where the speakers just stay out of it. I'm not campaigning. And that goes back, you know, well before the campaign period. I don't attend caucuses. The only time I get involved at all with anything to do with my party is when the parliament is out of session. Uh, so I go to the summer 
retreats that the Labor Party has, but don't go to any of the other you know, one-day caucuses or recess caucuses or, or anything like that. Don't go to political meetings, don't door knock, uh, don't do phone calling. So I'm an observer very much in the way many members of the public or the media are. So if we give you an opportunity now to recommend to our listeners which party they might want to vote for, would you care to say which party they should vote for now? No, I, 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 I won't. I won't. I won't even. I won't even do it now. I, I, I could probably indicate that I'm, uh, you know, I'm not feeling deeply upset at the moment as I read the polls, uh, but that would be about the limit of what I could say. Right, we'll hit oh, your limit. Thought I'd got you there. <laughs> but you're number 11, I think, on, on the Labour list. So nonetheless, you, you do want to come back next term. I do want to come back, but I, I am also very much in the situation that I was in in 2017. You know, I mean, I, I, right. I'd like to be Speaker again. You know, I think there's more work to be done, and not necessarily for a full term. And all that, of course, will be dependent on the Labour caucus and the Labour Party, one, being in a position to form the government, and two, wanting me to continue to do the job. But if I wasn't in that position, um, then obviously I could very serious consideration to retiring. I'm, mm. I'm not a spring chicken. And if I'm ever going to do some, something afterwards, then that has to happen relatively soon. Right. We had the slightly unusual situation this term where we the Parliament came back for those extra four weeks. I mean, that must have been like you've ridden the lap of, of Lake Taupo and you're looking forward to the first beer, but you find out the finish line's being moved up the road to Rotorua a bit. Yeah, so we're not quite another 100k, I think. You know, sort of <laughs> a, but it was a weird situation. I think most people thought Parliament should come back. The government made, I thought, what was a principled decision uh, not to do any non-COVID-related legislation. You know, there were quite a few bills there which could have been tuned through uh, in the afternoons and evenings. Uh, but then you had the weird situation where the Parliament was sitting for one and a half hours a day, two days a week. So we did get to the end of it and people both from the government and the opposition were saying, I'm not really sure why we've been here. Mm. But having the parliament sitting, having the availability of the accountability, I think was important. So let's go back to basics a little bit. Parliament is a house of representatives. All these members of parliament come from around the country and collectively they're meant to represent the will of the people. It's an old idea, it's an imported idea. Does it work? Is the will of the people in the driving seat? I think it generally is on balance and not on every issue. I mean, there are occasions where it's important for parliament to show leadership, but no government will survive and members won't survive as members of parliament if they get too far out of step uh, with where the people they are representing. Parties are also a matter of balance. You know, I can remember, um, this is dating me now, listening to Norm Kirk on the steps of the Wellington Library in the 1972 campaign, and where he basically had 10 points and, and said, you know, if you agree with six or seven of these, then I expect that you want to vote Labour. And if you believe in eight or nine of these, well, I expect you to join the party and, and to do the work. But the idea that even all members of parliament will agree with every bird of caucus policy is, you know, is unrealistic. And expecting the public to agree with, you know, all policy is unrealistic as well. <laughs> There are things, I, I think there are some things which have happened post-MMP around the uh, around the power which has gone to parties 
uh, into leaders. There's much more centralised power than then there used to be. The lists are very important for uh, half the members of parliament, including myself uh, at the moment. But, but I, I'm pretty sure that that does serve as a pressure point uh, for individual members and they're expressing a views which don't fit with the views of the leadership. So we do have a, a more constrained ability to speak out than I think that we had when I was first a member of parliament. You don't see the Mike Minogues, the Marilyn Wearings, even the Quigleys. So there are only 120-odd MPs, 5 million New Zealanders. So in a way, when you're casting your vote on a piece of legislation, you're sort of voting on behalf of, you know, 41,665 and a half New Zealanders. How does that feel? Do you feel that weight ever? Uh, I, I think you don't feel it unless it's a conscience issue. Because I think in the in most votes you have the protection of the discussions which have occurred within the Cabinet, within the caucus uh, and, and with colleagues. But on a conscience vote, I think there's an extra responsibility to consider the views of constituents, not to, to be a straight proxy for them, but to consider the views and also, I think, to consider the direction of travel of the country. You know, you, you've got some different views that, you know, the, the current end of life choice bill, frankly, is, I mean, I, I supported it and I will vote for its implementation at the referendum, but frankly, it is weak. It is very, very weak and there are lots of people whose quality of life is going to be really bad, but are not going to be able to use the legislation because of the watering down that occurred right. to it in order for David Seymour to be absolutely satisfied that it would pass. You know, it was watered down time and time again. If it was watered down anymore, I would have said, no, let's pull a plug on it and wait for, a, you know, a, a better bit of legislation. Mm. Okay. So we said we wanted to have a talk to you about MP behaviour and, and how MPs feel about Parliament, because it seems there has been a lot of talk about the unhealthy culture of Parliament this term. Just one example, Green MP Chloe Swarbrick said, Parliament is a toxic culture that chews people up and spits them out. The system dehumanises people and you therefore become inhuman and disconnected from the people who you purport to represent. Is that fair? Uh, I, I think that's probably an overstatement. I think that there is a danger of that. There's a danger of people being desensitised. But it's also an indication of, as Parliament's age group and gender begins to become more representative of our community, we've got to progress even faster at making it a better workplace. Mm. Not just for MPs. I mean, I have concerns about MPs and the way that they're looked after, but actually as someone who's involved in employing the Chief Executive of the Parliamentary Service, I'm actually much more worried about the way that staff in the place are treated, partly by MPs, but also by other staff. It is a really intense workplace and we've had a tradition of not looking after each other well. When I first became an MP, the place was, or just finished being controlled by people who were, the, you know, the Second World War generation. You know, they were mm. a group of older, we'd now regard them as very sexist, fixed ways, heavily drinking men and their attitudes. We're talking about, you know, people of a generation who are, who are older than my father's. And the parliament was sort of like their club. 
Mm. You know, it was a place where they came and all their attitudes sort of hung out. And my view is that we've made significant progress since that time, but we've got to make more progress. And part of those changes are attitudinal and part of them are systemic. When I interviewed Jamie Lee Ross after his public meltdown, he said a couple of things that, that really struck me. Firstly, that Parliament was like school camp with alcohol. And secondly, that the people who were drawn to politics in the first place are generally pretty unusual. So is that part of the problem with parliamentary culture? You know, too much booze, but also too many weirdos. Well, you certainly have a lot of people who have very strong views. Many uh, parliamentarians could be described as obsessive. They believe in things deeply and they want to uh, work hard. And that does tend to mean that we're, you know, overrepresented with particular personality types where more problems are more likely uh, to occur. On the alcohol question, I mean, it might be that I've just been in recent years excluded from all of the drinking groups, uh, <laughs> but my experience is that, you know, especially within the Labour caucus for which I was involved and in up until the 2017 election, there is nothing like the amount of drinking that occurs by members of parliament now compared to when I was first a, you know, first a member of parliament. As a whip, I used to regularly um, have to take people out of the house uh, from both sides who had clearly had too much to drink. I've got some views on that. I uh, very early in my career had had one glass of wine and stumbled on one of the steps going into the house. And that, that for me was just an incredible lesson because I thought, well, if I'd gone down and if I'd been seen and someone asked, had you been drinking, I'd have to say yes. And I've had absolutely the same rule as speaker. If I'm, if I'm ever going to go back into the chamber, I don't drink. Reflecting on your own past, you mentioned that you know you were an attack dog, you were an aggressive player, and you were famously involved in a scuffle outside the debating chamber. When you look back, how do you reflect on that? Well, I think that well, there's lots of stuff that that's occurred that I'm not proud of. You know? I think at the time, you know, incident by incident, there's probably a degree of self justification. Sure, but if one looks now at the sort of culture which allowed that to happen and allowed me to think it's okay, it's clearly not acceptable. And you know, I, I sort of quite often go to you know what I, what I like my kids and my grandkids to see me behaving that way, or would I like to see them behaving that way? And the answer is no. And so. You know, I, I mean, I was an attack dog maybe because I'd been around for a while. I saw, you know, I actually saw Muldoon as a very effective politician. Uh, if you're going to say, all right, I'm not going to make any enemies, you're not going to be a good politician, particularly you're not going to be a good politician in government. I think that one no, of the... He was aggressive. He did frighten his opponents. And so as a result of that, his party did better than it would have otherwise uh, for a period of time. But in doing it, there was a... You know, as one looks back, there was a lot of damage done both within his own party uh, and, to the, and to the parliamentary system as a, as a whole. And, and uh, oh, Just to be devil's advocate on, on the move towards less bullying or harassment or aggression or, or nastiness or attack dogginess, is anything good being lost if we get rid of the, the gloves off approach to politics? I think if people can focus much more on issues rather than individuals, then we can we can actually have stronger and more intense debate 
but it's about the things that are important and not around the personalities. I don't think we should pretend that we all agree on everything, hold hands and sing kumbaya. You know, that's not the approach that I would take. But I think there is an ability to focus more on the issues. And I actually think some of the changes that, um, that we're beginning to bring in will help that. What are the changes that are coming? What can be done to improve things? Uh, well, we've got quite a big set of things which are coming in as a result of the standing order uh, changes. And some of them, I mean, the COVID doesn't have very many positive side effects, but one of the positive side effects is that we were forced to adjust our rules, adjust our standing orders during that period. And we managed to trial a few things that some of us have been wanting to do for quite a long time. One of them is around select committees being able to meet by Zoom or uh, or by similar approach uh, and to take evidence that way uh, from around the country. So you could have half a dozen members in different cities and, and people making submissions from somewhere else. Well, that makes an enormous difference uh, to members of parliament. If you've got a one-hour select committee and you can do it from your home or your office and your electorate, as opposed to having to you know fly to Wellington for an hour and fly home again, you know, it makes it a, a much friendlier workplace. What about in terms of the culture? And, and you mentioned the um, Francis report that you commissioned into parliamentary culture, and it came out with some damning findings of, of bullying, harassment, gossip, aggressive behaviour. How can Parliament be improved as a workplace for those staff that you are concerned about? We're making quite a lot of progress. So, you know, there's a big set, I think 86 recommendations, and, and I think in just under 70 we've made quite a lot of progress already. I spoke to Dame Margaret Baisley, who's been involved in a couple of similar reviews, and with Debbie Francis, and there's a, there's a view that that the objective should be to make substantive change. It's going to take about five years. Instantaneous change doesn't occur. I was really encouraged at the end of the Parliament uh, that we managed to get the uh, Labour Party, National Party and the Green Party on board for the Code of Conduct uh, which a group of MPs and staff and media uh, had been working on. It's, it's not rocket science. It's, it's almost like how does a reasonable person behave in a workplace? But there was quite a lot of reluctance to signing uh, onto it. We're still left with a question as to the enforcement vis-a-vis -vis members of parliament, but members of parliament are going to have to sign up to it as they employ staff. So it's going to be built into the contractual arrangements for staff, which will be signed off by members of parliament. And under the new employment laws, which came in, in July, members of parliament will have individual responsibility, you know, personal financial liability for breakdowns and relationships. So there's going to be both a code of conduct and that I think will improve the way that um, some members, and, I, and again, I just want to say that it is a minority of them, uh, the way that they treat their staff. There's still an open question about what we do as far as members of parliament versus members of parliament issues and adjudication systems and transparency uh, around that. And that's something that we have to do some more work on. I think there is goodwill to get a system sorted out. There are a lot of other things around the buildings that are changing. I worked out with the chief executive of the parliamentary service that we, you know, we have a number of repeat offenders 
um, as far as bad treatment of staff is concerned. And what we ended up doing is, in some cases, you know, where it was occurring in select committees, we had people sitting in select committees essentially to audit what was occurring. Often occurred with some relatively senior members and relatively weak chairs of select committees, so you ended up with problems uh, of that sort. And we also had a number of members where, with my agreement, the chief executive declined to approve the appointment of further staff until there'd been you know, mentoring arrangements put in place or people had done, uh, basically people had done courses. It's easy to blame members of parliament, but many members haven't been involved in supervising or employing staff previously, and frankly, they're not very good at doing it. And then you have another group of people who have been involved in sometimes having really big roles and find it very hard to step back into uh, having a staff of two or three. New Zealand's not the only parliament around the world that's just trying to deal with some of these issues. There's been a lot of talk about the, the British parliament, about the, the culture at every level, which inevitably makes me think of the quite brilliant TV show, The Thick of It. Let's fire someone. What about Glenn? No, no you can't just fire Glenn well, like we, that. We, we could fire Glenn. Shall I get his file? No, I've got a list. It's, See, there you are, he's got a list. It just occurred to me, did any of it resonate I loved it. Yeah. You know, it's a wonderful program. I mean, Richard Preble described Yes Minister uh, in a way which I really liked, and that is that the uh, public think uh, that it's a comedy, the politicians think that it's a tragedy, and the public service know that it's a documentary. Now, <laughs> now the thick of it's not quite like that, but there are elements of it. There's a bit less now, but... If you think of some of the manipulative people who have been around, even in the current parliament, you can see bits of the thick of it uh, flowing through. <laughs> okay, you, dish to it. Who is Malcolm Tucker in New Zealand's parliament? No, I'm, I'm not. I'm not going to. I'm not going to go there. I, I, I hope to be. I hope to be real. There's one person I could say, and I'd be absolutely safe. But uh, I don't think it'd be appropriate to speak. Very good. Well, one last thing then. We couldn't convince you to, to out Malcolm Tucker. We couldn't convince you to tell people who to vote for, but can we convince you to give us uh, your best calling of the House to order? Order. Order. Got it? Very good. Mr Speaker, thank you very, very much. Thanks, guys. That was the Tick Tick Podcast for Wednesday the 16th of September. I'm Adam Dudding, here's Eugene Bingham. Thank you to Trevor Mallard, Jack Price, Catherine George, Chris McKean, Patrick Crudson, John Hartfeld and Carol Hirschfeld. Also, the Chloe Swarbrick audio was from OK Chloe, the Loading Docks short documentary by filmmakers Charlotte Evans and Letitia Tate Dunning. You can find us on all the podcast platforms and if you want to get in touch with us, you can email ticktick at stuff.co.nz. If you want to support Stuff's journalism financially, go to the link on the Stuff website, stuff.co.nz. We'll be back on Saturday. Matewa.